following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. When I talk about this at uh, Southern Seminary in my classes, I mean, we'll take, we'll take weeks and weeks and weeks to talk about this because there's all sorts of elements to how you would walk with someone through the kinds of trials that we face. So that feels uh, a little overwhelming to condense a whole big bunch of material down into an hour or so. It's also a little overwhelming because I was asked uh, to, uh, in, the, in the context of talking about how to handle trials, I was asked to share uh, something of my testimony of walking through trials. And uh, so I want to try to do both things that I was asked to do, uh, tell you a little bit of my story and uh, talk a little bit about how we as biblical counselors can help people handle the trials they face. Um, one of the passages that uh, I was asked to talk about is James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And so let me read that and then we'll pray and get started. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given your word to us. We are thankful that it guides us into how we are to think and how we are to live. Father, as I think about um, the message we just heard and as I think about what's happening in our nation's capital and all across the country, I am aware that your word shocks us. Shocks us with how at odds it is with our experience. And so I pray that you would make us to be men and women who submit ourselves to your word even when we don't understand it and even when we don't prefer it. I pray that you'd give us hearts to submit to you, to love what you love, to listen to you, and so honor you. And Father, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, uh, if everybody is all worked up, in our country today about how controversial the biblical teaching on marriage is in a pluralist, accepting, loving society like the one we live in. I can think of a teaching in the Bible that's more controversial than the teaching on marriage. And it's the one we just read. I mean, if you, uh, if you think about this for five seconds you will see how controversial it is. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. That runs headlong into what we think we are supposed to do. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And if it, all you have to do is just think about all the different things that can go under that category, trials of various kinds. And the Bible says that when you think of all of those trials of various kinds, I want you to be happy about that. I want you 
to count it joy when you think of those things. This was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. Um, Rejoicing in trials was not something um, that was merely sort of an exegetical experience for me, where uh, I got to James 1 and just said, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, so I'm going to get happy about my... uh, about my trials. Uh, This was actually um, a crucial part of my walk with Christ. I became a Christian my freshman year of high school. Some... I got in with the right crowd at high school. Everybody always gets in with the wrong crowd. But I got in with the right crowd in the providence of God. And they wanted me to come to church. And I came to church, but only go on Sunday night because I didn't want to get up on Sunday morning. I wanted to sleep in. So I went to church on Sunday night. And they kept asking me to come back. And I kept coming back. And they asked me to go on youth events. And so I went. And one day, a gracious, kind, loving woman uh, shared the gospel with me. And I believed. And uh, she's still a dear, precious friend. My kids think that she's their grandmother, and uh, they call her Mimi, and she's a dear, precious part of my life even today. Um, But one of the first struggles, there was a set of struggles that the Lord had to address with me um, when I came to know him. Uh, But the most prominent Uh, as I remember those days, was the struggle that I had of of truly hating my mother, who I lived with. She was was a single parent at that point. She had left my father, and I hated her. I mean, as purely and uh, with as much commitment as I know how to communicate to you, I hated this woman. And um, I believed that I had every right to hate my mother. She was the cruelest person I had ever met. Uh, Honestly, still today, uh, as a 35-year-old man and been in ministry a long time, and um, or a long time, I've been, been in ministry... 15 years or something like that. And um, I'd done a lot of counseling, talked with a lot of jerks. Um, and uh, I still have never had in my entire life anybody mistreat me as badly as my mother did. My mom was a, a wildly promiscuous woman. She um, was a hater of God. Um, she was married to my father, but... Uh, slept around, and eventually um, fell in love with a man that, uh, that she worked with and had a long-standing affair with him while still being married to my dad. My dad knew about it for most of the time and was unwilling to separate, was unwilling to end their marriage, wanted to try to fight for his marriage, wanted to try to fight for his family, would appeal to her to do the same thing, and that was not her interest at all. And she agreed with her guy that um, they would each leave their spouses and uh, live happily ever after. 
And so on Christmas night when I was three, she kicked my dad out of the house. And that is one of my, it might be my earliest memory that I have. I have flashes of the memory from that night with my dad crying, with my, I have three brothers, two older brothers, 13 and 11 years older than I am, and then a twin brother who's 10 minutes younger than I am, saved me from being the baby by 10 minutes. And uh, um, I can remember my older brothers crying. I can remember my mom screaming. I remember them loading up my dad's pickup truck and the three of them driving off, my dad and my two brothers. And I wanted to go with them, but we couldn't. And I just remember flashes of that. And I remember crying and asking my dad to stay and it's hazy, but I remember some, some pain from that night. Um, and shortly after that, my mom's uh, lover uh, decided that he actually had a pretty sweet deal with his wife, and he was not going to be leaving her for his mistress. And that started about a decade worth of uh, heavy drinking from my mom. She became a drunk and she was an angry drunk. And you combine that with the fact that she, she hated me and my twin brother who were uh, about three getting into four at that point. She hated us. She believed that, uh, the main reason that this guy didn't want to come live with her after all, uh, was because his kids were older and he was not excited about the baggage that was going to come with his mistress. And so she took that out on me and my brother. And she uh, was merciless in her physical treatment of us. She um, violently abused us. Uh, she had a mop handle that she wasn't attached to a mop, as I recall. It was just the handle of it that she kept in between the wall and the fridge. And she would just whack us over the head with this thing when she'd be upset. And I can remember bleeding out of my head and having bloody hands from trying to block these blows from this mop handle when she'd get upset. She um, tried to kill us on a number of occasions. She had a gun that she used against us a few times. Actually, I have a, I don't have it anymore, but I had a bike and I was biking away from her uh, as she was shooting this gun. And there is just a remarkable providence of God. There was a bullet hole on the crossbar of the bike where uh, I was pedaling away on this and God just carried that bullet right through my pedaling legs and through the crossbar of the bike. I didn't have a scratch from any bullet anywhere, but there's this bullet mark from where I was riding away. And um, she, uh, she tried to drown me uh, one time. She got upset with me and she had bent me backwards over the sink. I was about seven at the time, as I recall. I'm not exactly sure, but I think I was around seven. And um, she'd bent me backwards over the sink and was burying my head under the water. And you're not Seven, you can't breathe. You're not having logical thoughts at this point. But I knew I was going to die. The, in fact, the Lord was kind there, remarkable providence there. My, my twin brother, Keith, who was always um, 
I don't know how to say it. It was hard for both of us. Nobody was loving what was happening. But my brother was always much more intimidated and in pain by this than I was. He would, I mean, there, there were times when literally, there was one time when my mom had a gun cocked at his head. And he was just holding onto her leg crying saying he was sorry. I'm so sorry, mommy. I'm so sorry. Um, and I was never that way. I was always, let's get out of here. And I'm back that particular time I dragged him out of the house. Um, so he was always trying to pacify mom. And, um, even when I was with, with him, I always felt alone because we couldn't talk there. He wasn't, there wasn't a lot to talk about. He didn't have a lot to say. And, but I'm drowning here in the sink and all of a sudden it was over. I came up out of the water and I'm coughing and my mom is laying on the floor and I'm laying on the floor and she's screaming, holding her elbow. And there's, uh, my twin brother holding a vodka bottle of all things. Uh, and he had used vodka bottles are thick. All right. I don't know if, uh, or this, these were anyway. And, uh, he had whacked her in the elbow with a vodka bottle to keep me from drowning at her hands here. And, uh, so the, that, her elbow bothered her for 20 years after that, actually. She never, uh, never fully recovered. But I, uh, those kinds of things happening, um, just underlined to me that I was going to die. And so I, I knew as a little boy, seven, eight, nine, I knew my mother was going to kill me. I just, I was just, I just, I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I knew my mom was going to kill me. And I lived with that reality and it was a very painful reality because of something my grandmother said. Um, My mom had early on moved us away from our family because my dad would make it hard for her to do these kinds of things. And so she moved us away from him. And so we weren't around people that we knew very much. But my grandmother came over one time and my mom was actually passed out in the floor. And we hadn't eaten in a while. There wasn't a lot of food. Mom could not keep a job because she was drunk all the time. And uh, we we hadn't eaten in a while. Uh, I've seen pictures of us from that period. And it looks, we looked scary. I mean, we were so drawn and pale. And it just looked... It looked awful. And my grandmother said, um, you boys aren't living here. You're just surviving. And I just hope God doesn't send you to hell. And that was, that was the message. And, you know, I just remember thinking something like, you know, I hope he doesn't too. And so from that point, maybe seven or eight uh, until I was 14, the only thing I knew about God was that somehow he had the deciding vote in whether I went to heaven or hell. And I did not want to go to hell. And I'm telling you, I, so I knew I was going to die and I knew I was going to go to hell. And I don't, it, it tortured me for years as a little boy. And I didn't know how to get out of it. I can remember lying awake at night and praying that God would not send me that, God, I don't want to go to hell. And the worst part of it was I couldn't even imagine how hell could be any worse. I knew it was going to be awful, 
But I couldn't imagine how it could be worse than what I was. And so I'm like, it's going to be so much worse than this, and I don't want to go. There was one night when we had run away. She was freaking out, going nuts, and we ran away. It was a snowy night. And uh, you guys know what snow is out here? It's so beautiful out here. We have this thing called snow in Kentucky. When it gets cold and precipitation, it's called snow. Um, now it's just called disgusting humidity. I left Louisville and it was like 90% humidity. You like breathe and drowned. Um, but, um, but when it gets cold, all that turns to snow. And we ran away and we, we found a, a hedgerow that was up against a building. And there was no snow under the hedgerow. And so we climbed back in there and uh, tried to sleep. And I remember laying down this night and looking through the hedge at the falling snow. It was very cold. And I knew I would freeze to death that night. I, I knew we were going to die, and I knew I was going to go to hell. And I desperately wanted out of that situation and didn't know how to do it. We were, um, shortly after that, we were placed in a foster home. We got really bad frostbite after that, and... There was no, the, the courts who had been involved somewhat, there was no denying when you looked at us and the bad physical state of our bodies. Uh, the hor- my mom came, I remember my mom came into court. She's wearing a nightgown uh, and was completely drunk. She looked worse than we did. And uh, that's when the judge finally said, okay, well, we can't let this happen anymore. Instead of giving custody to my father who wanted us for complicated reasons, we were placed in a foster home. And uh, that was miserable. I hated the foster home. Um, short, several weeks after we were released from the foster home, our foster parents were indicted on multiple counts of child molestation. And uh, the Lord was very, very kind to me and my brother. There was a 16-year-old, and nothing happened to us. Uh, I'm aware, in retrospect, that there were things that our foster father in particular tried to do, but he was not able to do it uh, because there was a 16-year-old foster child in the home who was there. He was being punished. He had committed some crimes, and he was a minor, so they placed him in foster care. But he knew what these guys were up to. His name was Jeff. If you ever think of Jeff, pray for Jeff. And uh, I, I I don't know whatever happened to him, but he kept us out of a mess of trouble in the Lord's kindness. And he would fight this man off of me and my brother. I didn't know at nine, we were in the fourth grade then, I didn't know at nine what was going on. I thought he just just disagreed with the foster father. I didn't know what was happening, but in retrospect, I'm like, that is what he was doing. Um, We got out of that. And things got a little better for a little while, but then they got worse, worse than they'd ever been. And finally, my dad was able to find us. And this uh, one night, he came to get us, and there was police cars, and my mom was lying in her vomit. Um, And that was the last time I saw her. And I was thrilled about that. I went to live with my dad, which is what I'd always wanted, and I couldn't imagine things were any better. Uh, We would... uh, My dad was the opposite of my mother, the kindest man I'd ever met. And um, uh, I loved my life. We grilled hamburgers and went fishing and 
listened to country music, and I, I rode around in a Chevy pickup truck, which I thought was awesome. Uh, it was a piece of garbage, but I thought there was like nothing better than my dad's pickup truck. And uh, um, we were there for two years, and my mom called, and I didn't care. I realized when she called, I had not thought about her in two years. I wasn't sad. I wasn't concerned. I just was happy to be with my dad. I did not think of, there was no bitterness. There was just, you're gone, and that's good. And um, she wanted to see us, and I didn't want to see her, but Keith wanted to see her, and so we got together, and she said she wanted to get back together. She wanted us to move in with her, and I did not want that. But she did some legal things. It was a complicated situation. I'll spare you the details, but... She did some legal things that um, caused uh, the judge to give custody back to her, and we had to leave my dad after two years and, and move in with her. We were living in the country at that point, a little town called Mount Sterling, which I thought was the center of the universe. Um, and she had moved to Louisville, where she'd gone through drug and alcohol treatment. In God's kindness, she would never drink again after that. I also discovered she had cancer, and she'd had a life-saving operation to... Uh, save her life there. I didn't care about any of that. I didn't want to know. When she told me, I'm like, well, glad everything's okay, but I didn't care. But that's where she was in Louisville at that point. And so she came to take us away with her loser boyfriend and uh, and this red pickup truck that I did not think was awesome. And uh, I always remember that day as one of the darkest in my entire life because I loved my father and I didn't want to leave. And I hated my mother. I didn't want to go live with her. I hated her boyfriend. Um, She didn't have a place to live yet in Louisville, so she lived in a homeless shelter in Louisville. So I'd been to see that place, and I couldn't imagine moving from, like, our house in the country um, to, uh, to a homeless shelter surrounded by corrugated wire in downtown Louisville. Um, And... um, yeah, just one of the darkest days of my life was saying goodbye to my father. Um, he didn't want me to go, and I didn't want to go, and I, I begged him not to make me go, and There wasn't anything anybody could do. It was, the decision was made. And so I went with my mom, and um, I was totally miserable. I cried all the time. I tried to get back to my dad. I, it was not possible to do that. And so when I thought about hating my mom, that's what I thought about. I thought about how she treated my dad. I thought about how she took me away from my dad. Um, and um, I thought I had every right to hate her. And then I got saved, as I told you. And I'd been a Christian for about a year before I realized that this hatred of my mom was a problem. I realized it was a problem from reading Matthew 18, which says you have to forgive your brother from the heart. And it was reading Matthew 18, which 
was, it's the only time in my Christian life, I always say, when I believe Jesus took something that was mine. Um, I believed that my hatred of my mother was mine. And it's not like uh, it was unjust, right? It's not like she was a great mom and I was a horrible person and I just hated her because I was a horrible person. I mean, she had it coming to her. She was an awful person and it didn't get better. She knew I didn't want to be with her. She hated me for that. And so that just made things worse. She tried to knock me around a little bit even then. And I would grown up then and was bigger and she couldn't get away with that. But we just, I hated her. She hated me right back. And it was this vicious cycle. And I realized I've got to... Um, I've got to do something about this. And I didn't know what to do about it. I did not know what forgiveness meant. It took me a year to get on board with Jesus about that, by the way. It took me a year or so to say, okay, Jesus, you say forgive. I'm going to forgive this woman. But I didn't know what that meant, so I just said I'm going to be nice. So um, I started being nice. And... Over time, I began to really forgive her. And over time, I began to see her soften. And over time, I got to the point where I am now, where I can say I have legitimate joy in the midst of those trials. There is, there is uh, pain in those, um, in those trials. It's not fun. It's not a blast. I skipped over some of the gory details about the day I left my dad because I've never been able to tell that without crying and I'll spare you that. Um, there's, there's pain in it. But that's because sorrow is supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to feel good. In fact, that's one of the important realities of James chapter 1. Is count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The passage doesn't teach us to rejoice at the trials. We're not to be happy about pain. We are not people who rejoice at suffering. What the passage calls us to is to rejoice in suffering. The passage doesn't redefine wickedness as good. It doesn't redefine pain as enjoyable. What it says is that God is able to do things in our suffering that are good even though the suffering is bad. You rejoice when you meet trials of various kinds for you know something, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God does things in suffering that he doesn't do without suffering. That is the past, that's the truth behind this very controversial passage that honestly, if you can't figure that out, if you can't come to trust in that, I don't know how you live the Christian life. 
I don't know how it's possible to walk in life as a Christian without embracing that fact that God does things in suffering that are good that he would not do apart from the suffering. And to examine that just a little bit more closely, let's flip over to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 68, says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. So that is, that passage will be our outline for the rest of our time. And I think there's three things we can see about it. It says, you are good. If we're going to handle trials, if we're going to believe James 1, we've got to believe that God is good. God's character is good. And and I think there's a couple of things that we can say about God's good character. First of all, Uh, God is strong. We read in the Bible about a God who is omnipotent, sovereign. He is in control. God holds the whole world in his hands and he does whatever pleases him. Nothing comes to pass except that which is God's will in one way or the other. God is strong. And another thing we can say about God's good character is that God is full of love. It's, you know, Reformed people sometimes, when we, uh, when we talk about hard times, we talk about the sovereignty of God. We've got to trust in the power of God. And that's true. I just affirmed that. But if we only have God's sovereignty without God's care, then it's cold comfort for people in pain. Because we can imagine someone who's very powerful but not good. We can imagine someone who has all sorts of authority, but discharges that authority to accomplish wickedness. And you can be forgiven if you're thinking about the United States Supreme Court right now, by the way. But we could also think of dictators and drunken mothers and all kinds of things. So we need God's sovereignty, but we also need God's goodness, that God loves us. God loves you. And those twin pillars of the character of God, his strength and his care, are the things that will keep us up in suffering. But it causes a question. It it raises a question in our mind and in the minds of the people that God gives us to help. How can God be good? How can he be loving and use that strength to cause so much pain in our lives. It seems mutually exclusive. He's either got to be good or he's got to be strong. But in my life, when the bottom falls out and there's all this hurt, how can he be both? Well, there's a lot we can say about that, but 
flip over to Genesis chapter 45. You know the story of Joseph. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. Which is only good news when you consider that they originally were going to kill him. You know, so nobody wants to go into slavery, but if it's an execution or selling into slavery, maybe this wasn't such a bad day after all. But he is sold into slavery. He winds up with a pretty sweet gig working for the captain of the guard. The problem is the captain of the guard's wife thinks he's pretty good looking, grabs him, says, lay with me. He leaves his cloak in her hand and runs off and she trumps up the charge that he tried to sexually assault her. Now he's in prison, but he gets a reputation for being an interpreter of dreams, and Pharaoh comes and says, I need your help, and he interprets the dreams that, hey, there's going to be a season of feasting, and then there's going to be a season of famine, and you better save up some grain in the season of feasting so that the world doesn't die, and Pharaoh says, I like that idea. You're in charge. And so, having been sold by his brothers into slavery, having been sent to prison on a false charge, now Pharaoh has made this man, Joseph, second in command of all of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the world. And everything that Joseph says comes to pass. There's these fat years, and then there's these lean years. And during the lean years, the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery start to get hungry. And they come down to Egypt to this famous man who has uh, stockpiled enough grain to feed the world. And they don't recognize when they kneel down and honor this man that it's their brother. But Joseph recognizes them. And in verse 3 of Verse 45, or chapter 45, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I will bet. (laughs) Good night. Okay, guys, we're in a lot of trouble here. And what Joseph does is Joseph then tells them what happened. This man who's gone through great turmoil, who experienced wickedness at their hands, he now is going to tell them what happened. And here's what he says in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
And now your eyes see and your and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph says what happened. He says, let me tell you what transpired between us. He says in verse 4, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. He says in verse 5, Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That sounds exactly like the story we remember. There was this debate about whether to kill him or sell him, and they sold him, and he's watching in this cart as his brothers go blend further and further more and more into the horizon. I mean, this sounds like what we know. His brothers sold him into slavery. But that's not all he says. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. That sounds a little different than what we saw. We haven't read about that yet. We've been reading about what the brothers did. And I says, Don't be depressed or angry because you sold me into slavery because God sent me here. He kicks it up a notch. In verse 8, he says, It was not you who sent me here, but God. He sent me here to preserve a remnant. That sounds exactly the opposite of what we saw. It looks like the brothers did it, but Joseph says that's not what happened. You didn't do it, God did it. And here's what Joseph understands about this horrible act of wickedness. All of these years of suffering that he's endured. He says there is one event. It's the selling of an innocent person into slavery in Egypt. But he says underneath that one event are two actors. There are the brothers who engaged in the transaction, and there is the sovereign God who oversaw the transaction. And underneath those two different actors are two different intentions. The brothers have their wicked intentions to rub out their brother. And God has his good intentions to keep the world alive. And as you keep reading in the Bible, to keep the ongoing thread of redemption moving forward. It's God's action in and through and over and above the suffering of Joseph that ultimately leads to the birth of the Messiah. And so in this one awful act, there are two different actors with two different intentions. God can be sovereign and good even in the midst of wicked actors because he does not do the same things they do for the same reasons they do. This preserves God's righteousness and sovereignty and the pain that we experience. And don't misunderstand, don't underestimate the consequences this had for Joseph. Because Joseph knew that, he was able to kiss his brothers. Because Joseph knew that, he was able to love his brothers. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he understand, he understood what you did was bad, but God oversaw it because he is good. 
This truth is a powerful reality when we experience suffering. God, you are good. Even in the pain, you are good. And this is a passage that tells us how he can be good, even in the pain. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good, and you do good. When we help people handle trials, we have to help them understand that God is good. And God is very good even in the pain. But we don't just help them understand that God is good in the hard times. We help them to see that in the hard times, God is doing a good thing. God, you are good and you do good. We don't just trust God's character. We trust God's plan. We trust what God is doing. Now, knowing the good things that God is up to in our suffering can often be challenging, and there's actually no guarantee that we will ever know the exact situation, the exact good that God is doing. That's why we have to trust him. But I do think the Bible teaches us some categories that we can understand and that we can teach to others so that we can know there's some categories that God is working in, even if we can't connect the specific dots. And so as we trust in the good God and as we trust in his good plan, we can trust that suffering is good for us. Suffering is good for us. Look at Romans 8, Romans 5, excuse me. Romans 5. Romans 5, 3 to 5. A similarly offensive passage to James 1. We rejoice in our sufferings. There's that again. Why do I keep saying that? We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing, so we're not happy at the suffering. We're happy in the suffering because we know something. This is just like James. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This just like James says, when you go through trials, God is doing good things. A good God is doing good things that he does not do apart from the pain. Now we, again, we wonder. We read James and we wonder, we read this and we wonder why. Why is that? Wouldn't it be better if God just did the good things without the suffering? Wouldn't, wouldn't we choose that? Well, in a fallen world where the human race has rebelled against God, God uses the suffering we created, the world of pain we created. He uses that for his good purposes. And if we wonder how God can do that, we need to remember that we do that all the time. All the time. We choose pain to experience good. Maybe every day. One, one example in my life was several years ago, I had a very resistant strain of strep throat. Um, I was sick with strep throat for three months. Had 104, 105 degree temperatures. Um, I mean, it got to the point where my, I mean, my throat was swollen out to here. It, it literally got to the point where I had to hold on to something and pray before I swallowed because it was that painful. I mean, you know, 
what I'm talking about. Have you ever had that kind of throat pain? All right, maybe you don't get strep throat in California, but, um, but it hurt, okay? And they were, I was going into the doctor. I, I, I was passing out at a certain point. I started passing out once while I was driving. And uh, I'm going into the doctor. They're giving me these nuclear-grade antibiotics in the rear end. And they'd give me an injection, and for a few days I'd feel a little bit better, and then I'd tank again, and then I'd go back and get another one. And finally they sent me to a, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and he said, we have to do something here. Because he said, you can't play around with strep throat. He said, you've already had it too long. He said, I mean, it eventually it can cause heart trouble, it can cause kidney failure, it can cause all kinds of difficulties. And they said, we've got to be aggressive here. We need to take your tonsils out. And he said, this is, I had had strep throat 25 times in my life. And so he said, this is, adult tonsillectomy is different than childhood tonsillectomy because your tonsils have grown deeper into your head. In your case, you have layers of scar tissue for all the times that you've had this. And so I'm going to have to essentially burn with like a fancy soldering iron. I'm going to have to burn two one-inch holes in your body's most sensitive tissue. And he said, it will be probably the most painful experience you've ever had in your life. He said, um, uh, for two weeks of recovery, it's probably going to feel like you've swallowed a hot poker. And he said, I'm going to give you the most powerful narcotics I can give you, but I still have grown men calling me, crying, begging for help. This is the guy who gets paid if uh, I do the surgery. (laughs) And uh, he said, I'm not trying to scare you, but he said, I don't want you to wake up from the surgery and believe that I led you astray about how bad it was going to be. So I appreciate that, I guess. And do you know what I did? I did the surgery. We scheduled it for uh, three days later, and I did it. And none of you think I'm a masochist. None of you think, Heath, you're so You're so cruel. Why, why would you choose to have a man come at you with a soldering iron and dig holes in your head? You don't think that because you understand that that pain, which was significant, was necessary to accomplish a greater good. Now, we'd like a world with no strep throat, but we already created that world in our sin. We do this all the time. We choose to go through difficulty because we believe it's going to be good for us in the end. And if we can trust ourselves to do that, when we need a lot of help about what it means to be good and wise, we can trust the Lord, who is the definition of goodness and wisdom. We can trust him to do the same thing with his sovereignty. Suffering's good for us. We can believe that. We don't have to know exactly what God is doing to believe that he can use it for our good. Another thing is that suffering is good for others. When we experience suffering, it's good for us. When we experience suffering, it's good for other people. Look at John chapter 9. Famous passage. John 9, 1 to 3, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus corrects the disciples that, you know, you don't have to do anything wrong to hurt. In a fallen world, you don't have to do anything bad to experience the pain of this world that we live in. But sometimes that happens so that God can use your pain to declare his glory in the world. And by the way, that's just what happened. I think about this man a lot. He says he was a man. I don't know how old he was. But let's assume the low end. Let's assume he was 20. Maybe he was 60. I don't know. But let's assume he was 20. He's a 20-year-old man, and he's blind from birth. 20 years. Imagine what that means. Imagine the pain that his parents experienced when they realized this boy couldn't see anything. Imagine what it was like to try to learn how to walk and eat as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old. I know for a fact this man sat in his yard in Israel as a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old boy and cried when the other kids were playing hide-and-go-seek and he couldn't play with them. I know for a fact that this man cried when he was 12, 13, 14, 15, and he realized no girl would ever want to marry him. I know for a fact this man was scared every day as he was a grown-up in a world with no access, no handicapped access. And he knew he was going to starve to death. He wondered where he was going to get money. I mean, this man had 20 years of a level of suffering that most of us can't even imagine. And then one day he hears the voice of this guy coming along and he he spits in the dirt and he rubs the mud on his eyes. Now Jesus can spit in my eye anytime he wants, but if you don't know who that is, you're liable to think this is its own kind of suffering, right? This guy spit in my eye. But he he listened and he went to the pool and he he wiped the mud off his eyes and he opened up his eyes. And there was a ray of sunlight and a tree and a face. We read later on in the chapter that he, he talked to his parents. What must it have been like for this man to look at his mother for the first time in 20 years? This man came to know Jesus Christ. And he's dead now. He's been in heaven for 2,000 years. And I'm telling you for an absolute fact, there's no way in the universe that that man looks on those 20 years with regret. There's not a way in the whole world. He's our brother in Christ, and he is in heaven with Jesus right now. And I'm telling you what, for a fact, he's thankful that he got to be used in the plan of God to exalt his son, Jesus Christ. For 2,000 years, when the gospel has been preached, this man's suffering has pointed to the infinite glory of Jesus Christ, and he's thrilled about it. We need to believe that just like God 
used this man's suffering for the good of others, he can use our suffering for the good of others as well. Suffering glorifies God. It's the third, third good thing. Suffering glorifies God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. One good thing that God is always doing in suffering is he is glorifying himself in our lives. How do you know you love God? And not God's gifts. How do you know it? We're rich here. You're sitting in air conditioning. You probably had breakfast this morning. You're going to have lunch today. You've got clothes on your back. You drove cars here. James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. How do you know that you love God and not what God gives you. In a world where the only good thing you can get comes from God, I would suggest to you that it's impossible for you to know if you love God or if you love what God gives you. Unless God takes the good things away. And if God takes the good things away and you hate God, then you're an idolater. But if God takes the good things away and you love him, then you're a Christian. And believe me, you want to find that out now, before the last day. God is very, very kind to you when he takes our comfort away to prove that we still trust him. To prove that he is what we need. God is too good to us to allow us to find comfort in something less than him. And so he is merciful to us every time he takes something that's less than him away from us so that we can grow in our love and our trust for him. We can trust in God's plan because we believe that God is doing good things, even we don't know the details about the good things that he's doing. Psalm 119.68 says, you're good. We can trust in God's good character. Psalm 119.68 says, you do good. We can trust in God's good plan. Psalm 119.68 says, teach me your statutes. Now, we want to know the statutes of God when everything's going great. We just got a raise when we have uh, uh, just had a great experience with our wife or our husband or our kids. When, uh, when there's plenty of money in the bank, we think God's awesome and we want to know the statutes of God. 
But Psalm 119.68 is not about knowing the statutes of God, but things are easy. Psalm 119, verse 67, and verse 69, and verse 70, and 71, and 72 are all about affliction. Psalm 119.68, in the context of, of the psalm, is teaching that in pain, God is good and does good, and we need to know his statutes. So that means Psalm 119.68 is a passage about biblical counseling. It's a passage that commands that when people are in pain, they need to go to the statutes of God and learn that he is good and that he does good. God has been very kind in my life to show me um, some details about the good things he was doing in my own personal life. He used all of that pain to bring me to a knowledge of him. He used all of that pain to bring my twin brother to a knowledge of him. He used all of that pain to bring my mother to a knowledge of him. He used all that pain to bring uh, the wife of my mother's lover to a knowledge of him. Actually, everybody that was in the worst part of that abuse got saved. And God used the suffering to do it. I am a better minister of the gospel because that happened to me. I have never been tempted to blow off the suffering and pain of hurting people because I know what it's like to be in the midst of suffering and pain. I'm a better dad. Nobody told me they loved me when I was a little kid. My dad did, but I wasn't around him very much. And so every day I'm looking at my kids and saying, I love you. Do you know it? Do you know that your daddy loves you? Um, I'm working hard to actually love them, not just say it, but to actually love them. And, and most of the time I think about, it stunk living with a parent who I knew hated me. I don't want that for my kids. So I don't, so I know many of the details of the good things God was doing in my life. We won't always know that in our experience. We won't always know the details when we're counseling others, but we can tell them that God is good. We can tell them that he does good. And we can teach them the, his statutes. And we've seen some of those here this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would watch over us and make us to be people who know that you're good, who know that you do good. And you would equip us to study your statutes and to teach them to others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org. Thank you.